restoration movement. We finished last time talking about uh, a man by the name of, what was Smith's first name? Uh, Elias Smith. Elias Smith. And uh, his part in the restoration movement and and uh, the the stances that he took that that uh, were able to lead him out of uh, the the Baptist denomination at least for a little while, ultimately going back to uh, being drawn back into the idea of universalism, and uh, you know he uh, I think we owe him a debt for getting people's mind headed in the right direction, much like we do. Uh, we owe a debt to those uh, men of the Reformation movement. Getting people's mind headed in the right direction, understanding that the Catholic denomination was in opposition uh, to God, though their beliefs had deficits to them, and we're not upholding them in their uh, misbeliefs or their error, but we are applauding their effort to want to go back to the Bible, which helped uh, propagate this idea of restoration. Now. As we looked at Elias Smith and, and uh, his ties to the uh, Baptist church up in the New England area, uh, on a whole, they kind of held the same beliefs and tenets that James O'Kelly held. And we spoke, uh, talked a lot about James O'Kelly. And uh, after having uh, become a separate people, they endeavored, like O'Kelly and his movement, to have no head over the church but Christ. They also decided that there would be no confession of faith, articles of religion, rubrics, canons, or creeds. They decided they did not want to have any kind of a secular name. They wanted to be known as Christians and Christians alone. But, much like James O'Kelly, when it came to this idea of fellowship, they fell very short. Uh... The only test for Christian fellowship, in their opinion, was sincere piety, evidence, evidenced by an upright walk and a, and a meek deportment. They own all as their brethren whom they have evidenced that God owns as His children. Uh, of course, that test of fellowship falls drastically short of what the Bible intends and what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> What is the test of fellowship when uh, we're talking about uh, among individual Christians and congregations of the Lord's people in general? What would that test of fellowship be? Well, if we're in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with faithful Christians, aren't we? But then that test of fellowship has to be understood to be being in obedience to what God has said. Uh, according to Smith and James O'Kelly and a lot of those other people, and I understand where they're coming from because coming out of the uh, Church of England, coming out of first the Catholic Church, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, also known as the Authorized Church, uh, they had a whole laundry list of things that you had to do that really didn't have a whole lot to do with the Bible. You know, you had to cast a ballot. Someone came in and you had to vote on them. You know, are we going to allow them to uh, be a member of our particular organization? When we talked about James O'Kelly, he became a Methodist. Uh, 
Elias Smith became a Baptist, but prior to their joining those particular organizations, they were recognized by those organizations as Christians. So they could be a Christian, but they had to do some extra things to be either a Methodist or a Baptist or or whatever the case uh, was, right? And so the idea of fellowship is if we're in fellowship with God, then we are in fellowship with uh, those of like precious faith who are faithful. That means we have to be in fellowship with God according to what His plan of salvation is, right? There are a whole lot of different... Uh, in the in the minds and opinions of the denominational world, there are a whole lot of different roads headed to the right to the same de- uh, destination. Well, that's just not true, is it? Jesus was very plain in his uh, plan of salvation. The apostles were very plain in repeating that plan of salvation, and so <clears throat> we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. I look out into the audience, and and we're. We're all Christians, and so we understand that. Not that, not that I'm dismissing that in any way, but uh, we have the understanding of what that fellowship test is. Now, here's something we might want to consider. <clears throat> Can we withdraw fellowship from individuals? Well, that's what Paul, uh, he talked about withdrawing from those who walk disorderly and in separating yourselves from those who uh, told the Ephesian brethren uh, the unfruitful works of darkness, right? And that can be that can come from within, can it? Because remember, he told the the Ephesian elders that very thing recorded for us in Acts chapter twenty. And so, if we can withdraw from an individual Christian, can congregations of uh, God's people withdraw from other congregations on a whole? Absolutely, absolutely, right? You have the leadership who obviously is going to make those choices because that's God's decision of how church government is to operate. But obviously, uh, the church as a congregation, a local congregation, can withdraw from another congregation of the Lord's people. Now, how do we know that's the case? When we look at the government that God has established, we don't have a a national headquarters, do we? Every denomination has a national headquarters. Now, there are a lot of interdenominational uh, congregations in the world that are not affiliated necessarily with any kind of a larger group, but they still have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, their headquarters. And a lot of times they may branch out and put a, a... plant a congregation somewhere, so who now is overseeing that congregation? Well, the original one. That's how that operates, okay? So, if we look at the way God has established His government, and what goes on at White Oak is not going to affect what goes on at North Hamilton. Not that we don't care, right? Not that we won't try to reach out and help one another, but... If White Oak decides that we're going to allow our sisters to preach, or we're going to bring in the instrument, or we're going to start substituting the emblems for water and loaf bread, or or you name it, that doesn't cause North Hamilton to do that same thing. They're protected in that, right? And that that's the whole purpose behind this. Autonomy. Each congregation has autonomy. And we understand that when we go to Ephesians chapter 20. Do you recall how 
Paul described those elders that God, that the Holy Spirit had given them oversight of what? The flock where they are, right? The flock where they are. You don't have an eldership that's overseeing another congregation somewhere else, right? Now, you might have a congregation of the Lord's people who help plan another congregation somewhere, and for a period of time, the the uh, congregation may have oversight as far as helping get someone there, helping to support that congregation. But ultimately, that congregation stands on its own, right? That congregation stands on its own. And so that's one of the things that is so brilliant about the fellowship that we can enjoy as those of like precious faith and congregations of those of like precious faith. And so, this idea that that Smith came up with and O'Kelly came up with, well, as long as you are pious and you're a good person and you do the things God, or in, in their opinion, the things God wants you to do, which is you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, uh, you don't do any number of things, but it has to go beyond that. We We have to adhere to those things, right? But we have to become Christians in the way that, God has said uh, uh, we're to become a Christian, we're to maintain in that exact same way. So the appearance of piety, though it may be true, is not a test of fellowship, is it? In and of itself. Obviously, we have to be pious. And if we're not, then that is a part of that test of fellowship, but it does not rest solely on that. You know, have you ever known uh, members of denominations throughout the world who were good folks? Sure, absolutely. Do a lot of good things in this world. You know, but that doesn't mean that they are pleasing God in the way they worship and the way they claim to be saved or any any number of things, right? And so that is where Smith fell short, where James O'Kelly fell short. But we do see the progress, don't we? Moving away from the left, trying to get back more to the center or moving away from the right, trying to get back more to the center. But again, as we spoke about Elias Smith, eventually he just went completely back into universalism because usually you go from one extreme, you'll go all the way to the other extreme. That's how that works normally. And so uh, trying to run away from Rome, he ran past Jerusalem, and that's just as bad, isn't it? That's just as bad. Any comments, questions? All right, let's talk about someone for just a few moments that is always connected with Elias Smith. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on him, but he's worthy of mention. Abner Jones. Abner Jones was a great factor in uh, leading people away from the Baptist Calvinist doctrine, okay, uh, which resulted in their withdrawal of fellowship from him. <clears throat> Have you ever heard the statement that, or, or a general statement that you can tell a lot about a person by the enemies they have? There's a lot to that, isn't there? There's a lot to that. So this particular denomination became angered with Abner Jones because he was teaching against what their foundational principles were. And so what they say? All right, you're no longer a part of us. Well, that's right up Abner Jones' alley. That didn't bother him. He Did he slow down? 
No, he kept right on teaching against this Calvinistic doctrine, and he maintained. So, along with Elias Smith, Jones is credited with establishing the first, quote, free churches in the New England area. And also, uh, to the fact of men and women looking in the direction of the New Testament. If you're going to speak out against Calvinism, what do you have to speak in favor of? What's the only way you know that Calvinism's wrong? You go to the Scripture, right? Abner Jones was reading the Scripture, and he began to understand, now wait a minute, you're not born in total hereditary depravity. There's no such thing as unconditional election. There's no such thing as limited atonement. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, uh, irresistible grace. There's no such thing as perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved. And now think about it for a moment. What denomination in the world can you think of that claims to be a, quote, Christian denomination that doesn't hold to some form of those five tenets? I can't think of a one. Now they may not go as far as Calvin went, right? They may not be willing to stand up and say, well, that newborn baby that's three days old was born sinful, and if that baby dies, it's going to hell. They've kind of migrated away from that, haven't they? Because that just, we, we just can't, uh, you know, the human spirit can't go along with that. Uh, one of the only denominations that I can think of uh, that still does that is the Primitive Baptist Church. And, boy, they stick to their guns. I guess, in, in a sense, you have to give them credit for not adjusting their foundational beliefs. In fact, they're going out of business. They're almost extinct because they don't worry about evangelism. You're either born saved or you're not. No point in going out and evangelizing people. You know, they stick to their guns and what they believe in, so their numbers are drastically declining. But at any rate, so he he taught against that. He fought against that. And, uh, uh, you know, did he go far enough? Well, he didn't go far enough. But let's keep in mind, brethren, and we're about to talk about someone we're more familiar with. These men were trying to come out of darkness on their own. That's a, that's a big difference from what the rest of us have done, isn't it? We've, we've had help along the way. I can't think of, you know, personally I can't think of anyone, but I'm sure there are still people today who just simply read the Bible because you can do it if you if you put aside the, the things you grew up learning, right? If you just say, okay, I'm going to go back to the Bible with an open mind and I'm going to read the Scripture and I'm going to determine I want to find that church. That will lead you to the Lord's church, no doubt about it. But these men were being continually bombarded with these creeds and confessions of faith and councils and synods, and they were, in essence, being brainwashed from from a youth up into their uh, older years, and so it they just accepted it as truth, and it's difficult to kick that aside, isn't it? Now think about it. Let's think about things that are not of a religious nature, that maybe you grew up and it's just traditional within your family. How easy is it just to say, okay, I'm not doing that anymore? Well, that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? You know, uh, around Thanksgiving or around Christmas or whatever kind of a holiday, the family all meets up over here and then all of a sudden someone says, I'm not participating anymore. We're all going to do it over here at my house or we're, we're not going to do it. Well, that you talk about getting a family feud going, that'll happen in a hurry, won't it? 
So now think about that in a religious sense. Great granny, granny, mama, daddy, uncles, aunts, for 50 generations or however far back you can go, they were part of this particular denomination. It hasn't changed at all. That's exactly right. It's still very hard today. I've often said this. To me, it is easier to have a Bible study with someone who's nothing than someone who has a hundred years of a particular denomination behind them. Because it's hard to give that up. Because it's very personal, isn't it? I mean, think the very nature of having a relationship with God has to be very personal. And then you begin to look at it and you say, now wait a minute. How many of you heard this? <clears throat> are you saying my mom and dad are lost? That's a difficult question. It has to be handled appropriately. So, not that because it's the way I handle it doesn't mean that's the way, the only way to handle it, but what I say is that's not up to me. They've gone into eternity. They're in God's hands. God will do that which is right every single time. So what we need to worry about is what am I going to do in the living? And on top of that, if we had someone in our family tree who did not do according to God, and if they were to be lost according to God's Word, they don't want us to join them, right? We go back to Luke 15. Uh, or Luke 16, the, uh, uh, the rich man, Lazarus. What did the rich man not want to happen? So I got five brothers back at home. I don't want them to come here and join me. That's one of the most powerful statements you're going to find in the Bible anywhere, right? And so it's hard to get away from years and years and generation after generation of a particular denomination embedded into you you know, uh, Clay, you, you you grew up like that, didn't you? Very difficult to come out of that. A lot of people, you know, when I grew up, we weren't anything. I can remember we didn't do anything. We weren't interested in anything. We didn't have generation after generation after generation of a particular denomination. And we had to give up. I think that's easier. You just study the Scripture. You can see it. And then you can come to an understanding. You're not fighting against secularism. You're not fighting against uh, denominationalism. See, it's a lot easier. So these men, we look at them, we say, well, Abner Jones, boy, he was on the right track. He was moving away from Calvinism, so why did he not stop? Why did he stop? He thought he had done what he needed to do. We're not supporting him in his error, but we are saying, Thank you for doing what you did to get people even moving further away from Calvinism headed in the right direction. And that's one of the great things we learn when we study the Restoration Movement. And I think it gives us an appreciation for uh, the the difficulty in doing that. Have you ever known someone? I've known a lot of people, brethren, who are members of the Lord's Church and they act toward denominations like they're wrong. They know they're wrong. They're doing it on purpose. Nothing is further from the truth. Okay? They're sincere. They're pious. But can that be a test of our fellowship? Not by itself. Not that alone. So the way we handle people, you know, what Paul say? You teach the truth in love. You don't 
teach the truth in uh, irritation. You don't teach the truth in, uh, you know, traditionalism or dogma. You teach the truth in love, but you teach the truth, all the truth. And so we see Abner Jones headed in that direction. Elias Smith got off the train. Abner Jones kept going in that direction. But it would take a long time for those thoughts to develop into what we know as moving back to the New Testament church. Any comments? Oh, yeah, you know, I don't want to be the one standing in front of the Lord and you got people lost because of my interaction with one person. Now, does that mean we all haven't interacted the wrong way at some point? No. I can remember probably nearly 30 years ago where I interacted in the wrong way with someone during a religious discussion and it still sticks with me today. I learned a big lesson that day. It'll never happen again. But it did happen. And so, that's a burden we don't want to carry, is it? You don't want to carry that into eternity that you got someone over there lost because, you know, you offended them. Now, do people look to be offended because they don't have an answer to the what the Scripture says? Sure they do. Sure they do. You know, that's where that comes from. You're saying... My mom's lost. You're saying my dad's lost. You're saying this. You're... I'm not saying that, but if we don't control ourselves, and if we become angry as well, you know, and then we say something, well, that that's just a great, that's what they were looking for, right? But if we allow the Word to percolate and to simmer within them, that'll bring them around. You know, we don't, we want to make people uncomfortable with the truth, Right? We want to make them uncomfortable when they're in uh, in error. They're a member of a denomination. We want them to think about that. We want them to be conflicted within themselves because they study. And that's what we're seeing with these people. We say they became conflicted. They were they were being told this, but they're reading the Bible and they're saying, "Well, wait a minute, this isn't lining up correctly." But let's allow the gospel to conflict them and not our words being applied inappropriately. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Art says, you, you take yourself out of the equation. You know, don't tell someone what they need to do to be saved. Guide them to that spot where they say, you know, what, what does, uh, 1 Peter 2, 22, 1 Peter 2, 21 mean? What does that mean to you? The like figure where baptism doth also now save us. That's a big statement. You know, a lot of people, and rightly so, and I use Acts 2.38, but that has been so twisted. People say, okay, well, we know that for there means because of. Well, okay, well, let's go, let's go see what Peter said over here. Now, he didn't contradict himself, surely. See, that's a good point. 
And uh, uh, But we take ourselves out of it because a lot of the time people are looking for a way out to say, okay, you did this or you're offended. Have you all ever heard of the uh, Fishers of Men ministry? Fishers of Men ministry. Uh, I think that taking the class is wonderful. We help support Barry Hatcher here from time to time. And he's a Fishers of Men instructor. And it's a class. It's an 11-week class. And and you partner with, you you know, husband and wife can do it or anybody can do it alone. And uh, you have the teacher. You have the helper. You're sitting around and uh, having a Bible discussion just like we're having here. And But it teaches you how to ask questions, how to get them to find the answers. Now, do I use particularly use that study? Well, I don't particularly use that study because I feel like it's too long. And if I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what's the answer to this, and I have to think about it continually, maybe someone who hasn't studied the Bible very much have a really hard time with it, right? But I, use, I do use it for follow-up studies. It's a great study. But the, the, the thing that to me is the most beneficial teaches you how to interact with people, how to get a Bible study, how to ask an open-ended question, how to allow them, like Art said, come to that understanding on their own of, uh, boy, I'm conflicted about this. I've been, I've been hearing this my whole life, and now I'm reading this from the Bible. That doesn't look the same. So that's exactly what we want to do. And, and that's what these men were doing. Those men were doing that very thing. They were becoming conflicted on the inside, and they're thinking, boy, I don't know. This doesn't sound right. That's what the gospel does. It's the power of God unto salvation. The writer of Hebrews says it's like a two-edged sword, right? To the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and uh, it searches the intents and the thoughts of all people. Good comments. Anything else? All right, let's turn our attention. Yeah, Brother Ralph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, I think, if you can, is the is the prime statement there. You know, you wouldn't want to use a lot of these uh, translations. Uh, Romans ten, you you probably wouldn't want to use Romans ten ten in in, in most of the modern translations because it, it teaches a faith only, but. Look, I could take the NIV, and I don't support that in any way, shape, or form. And I could teach someone how to be a Christian. But I know what to avoid and what not to avoid. Do do people who aren't Christians and not that study in the Bible, do they, do they have that information? And I'm not saying I'm some kind of a scholar. I'm not. But you're just taking it for granted because it says Holy Bible on it, right? What they use the message. American standard. Yeah. Well, and that's right. And, you know, I could take the, the, the English standard version or the NIV or the, the I, I could take the new American standard version and I could teach them one plan salvation. Now, those Bibles are supposed to be a word for word. Now, I think they miss it in a whole lot of areas, those, those, uh, versions. But I could still show someone how to be a Christian.
Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and, and that's right. You know, uh, and and uh, and Ralph's not intending that we go grab up something that's a that's a, a, a paraphrased Bible. That's not what he's intending. And I understand exactly what he means, and we do too. And, and that's right. It, you know, I, I've known people. In fact, I just spoke with Keith Ritchie the other day that had a Bible study with some Jehovah's Witnesses. They use the New World Translation. Absolutely, uh, a fraud of a Bible. And he took their Bible and talked to them, uh, showed them where it contradicts their doctrine. Okay? So uh, I get, I understand exactly what Ralph is saying. But, you know, what, what's my suggestion? Anybody? Stay away from me, study Bibles. Stay away from me, study Bibles. Because, <laughs> you know, a lot of times there are denominational people who've got these notes in there and, you know, they're teaching Calvinism or they're doing whatever. That doesn't mean they're all wrong. You know, if you were to walk into my library, I've got some material in there written by denominational people. Okay? That doesn't mean everything they've got's wrong. I'm not going to hand it out to people. But where they, where they don't miss it is some of it's pretty good stuff. Okay? But I know, and again, I'm not setting myself up. I'm not a scholar, but, but I've studied, uh, you know, for years and I kind of have an idea of, of what particular uh, denomination where they're going to miss it or whatever. And, and so, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Fortunately, we have, uh, manuscripts that go back, uh, to, uh, uh, the first uh, century and, and further back from the uh, discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls gave us another, about another thousand years. And so uh, we're able to see how what the, the oldest manuscripts, what they say, and it's easy today to be able to determine if a version is a good version or not. And here's what we want. We want a word-for-word version, right? I think each of us here is smart enough to look at what God said and figure it out. Okay? And that's what these men were wanting. These restoration men, they said, look, don't tell me what I need to know. Let me read it and find out for myself. That's what Martin Luther wanted when we were studying the Reformation, right? He wanted to hold a Bible. And, you know, to me it's heartbreaking when we read about Martin Luther as a young man going to university and finding a whole complete Bible. And he wished more than anything else he could have one. I just looked down in front of me. Look what I found. We are in the church building. And so we got a ton of these in here, but I think probably most of us have a lot of them at home as well. And so we want a word for word, and we want to be able to see exactly what God wanted. And I think that is uh, not uh, unreasonable. <clears throat> sure, sure, and... and Sister Jane says that the Times Free Press put a Bible verse in there every morning and you can't even tell what, what, where it came from most of the time. No, he... Uh, 
He, he may be a Hebrew scholar, but he's obviously not a Greek scholar. And so uh, they left out big portions of the, uh, of the, uh, a lot of the verses. They've changed around. Uh, uh, for instance, it, it teaches faith only in several passages. Now, does that mean everything's wrong? I think Acts 2.38 and the NIV may be uh, better than any of them. But that doesn't overcome. I've got some notes uh, I'll put together. They all have flaws. But we have to understand what those flaws are. And, you know, uh, the King, let's take the King James Version for instance. Uh, you ever read the word Easter in King James Version? That's wrong. That's wrong. It's Passover. Passover. But, uh, you know, that was a prominent thing at that time. What about baptism? We're baptized. That's not a translation. That's a transliteration. It should be immersion. The King James Bible is giving us the worst thing possible when it comes to uh, mode of, you know, and it, it's difficult for me anymore to say mode of baptism because baptism is only one thing, immersion. Okay, so that's wrong. Now we get over to the New King James. And uh, uh, when uh, we look at Matthew nineteen nine, and the Lord said, Unless it be for fornication, he's talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You know what the New King James says, along with most modern translations? Sexual immorality. What, what, is, what is that? What is sexual immorality? Looking at pornography. Talking ugly or inappropriately with someone. Uh, having some kind of a, a relationship. Maybe it doesn't go all the way to fornication with someone who's not your husband or wife. That's sexual immorality. But do any of those constitute a reason to divorce and marry again? Fornication is very specific. It means intercourse. Very, very specific. And so, it should say, fornication, not sexual immorality. Is fornication sexual immorality? Absolutely. But is all sexual immorality fornication? No, it's just like being a Levite and a priest, right? All priests were Levites, but we're all Levites priests. Absolutely not. And so, so that's a, that's a problem, right? But, uh, you don't you don't find in the King James or New King James or, or the American Standard uh, where it teaches a faith only Calvinistic doctrine, and so we got to we have to weigh out the the errors or the scribal errors or something. There, look, there are going to be scribal errors, okay? But does is it does it going to affect my salvation? Well, it could if you if you read something that says. Uh, uh, with the heart man believeth unto salvation, and with the mouth confession is made, and you are saved. Because that's what the NIV says or, or about that. That's what the ESV says. I think the NASB says that. Uh, but is that true? What does, what does confession do for us? Unto salvation. You're not into salvation until you're immersed in water. Okay? And so those are just a few examples. Those are just a few examples. Ralph, do you have something? Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to say that he was probably a member of the, the Baptist denomination. Adrian Rogers from Memphis used to preach that all the time, and then he'd come right back, and then he'd say, he'd contradict himself. You know, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention out of Memphis. Uh, I can't remember the name of that congregation now, but anyway, it used to be 30,000 people. Bellevue. Out of, uh, it used to be 30,000. They had a split. They lost half their people. There's still 15,000. That's a huge congregation of people. And so, but he would preach that. You, if you turned it on, you begin to listen to Adrian Rogers. He's dead now. You would think, man, I'm listening to someone who's a gospel preacher. And then, and he would even say something like that. But then when it got right down to it, he'd contradict himself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, and, and now, if if you look at the at the creed for that denomination, see that man is conflicted. <laughs> he's saying, "I'm reading this." Now he may not be thinking he's conflicted up here, but in the back of his mind, he's understanding he's conflicted. And if he continues to study and to read, maybe he'll find his way out of that. And that's what and, and that's that's the purpose of. The Word of God. Good comments. Anything else? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I got off track there a little bit, but that's okay. Those are those are good pertinent questions we need to discuss when we have opportunity. Now, here's where we're going to go next time. We're going to pick up right here, and we're going to start talking about someone who's a little more familiar to us in the Restoration Movement, and that is Barton Warren Stone, Barton W. Stone. And uh, he, of course, along with... Uh, Alexander Campbell really made a big impact on this restoration movement. We're going to talk about his time at Cane Ridge and uh, his uh, leanings. And Barton Stone was a Presbyterian. And we're going to find out that once we get into the full push of the restoration movement, a whole lot of those people were had Presbyterian backgrounds. And, and you, it's hard to get much more Calvinistic than from that denomination. But at any rate, we'll pick up there. Any comments before we close? All right, thank you so much.